Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we spend the hour in conversation with poet, author, and award-winning journalist Judith Valente. We talk about her experiences reporting on the religion beat and her discovery of the value of monastic contemplation, a journey she describes in her recent book, Atchison Blue, a search for silence, a spiritual home, and a living faith. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Judith Valente. Miss Valente is an award-winning author, journalist, and poet. She's been an on-air correspondent for PBS TV since 1998. Her reports have appeared on the national news programs Religion and Ethics Newsweekly and the PBS NewsHour. She's also been a contributing correspondent for Chicago Public Radio and National Public Radio. She's currently senior correspondent and producer for WGLT Radio, the NPR affiliate in central Illinois. Her most recent books include Atchison Blue, A Search for Silence, A Spiritual Home, and A Living Faith, which was selected as the Best Spirituality Book of 2014 by the Catholic Press Association and one of the three Best Spirituality Books of the Year by the Religion News Writers Association. She is also co-author with Brother Paul Quinan of The Art of Pausing, Meditations for the Overworked and the Overwhelmed. Judith Valente, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, thank you so much, David. Well, I'd like to start by asking how you got started in reporting, and in particular, how you got started in reporting on religion. Okay. Well, I, I've always been interested in writing. When I was four years old, people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I would blurt out I wanted to be a writer. I, I always loved writing. I always loved observing and writing down my observations. And poetry was actually my first love. Uh, you know, uh, they're, they're the old uh, observation uh joy came in. And uh, when I got to high school, I got on the school newspaper. And in college, I was editor of the college newspaper. And I saw journalism as a way to uh, earn a living at writing, actually. <laughs> I didn't see much much of a future in poetry at that point. And um, how I became involved in religion was, you know, actually most of my career at the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post was covering things like politics, human interest, economics. But I was a religion, a theology minor at St. Peter's University in New Jersey. So religion, spirituality was always an interest of mine. And uh, when Bob Abernathy began, I heard that he began his show at PBS. I, I wrote him and said, I have a few ideas for you. And a few ideas turned into 15 years of me contributing segments to Religion and Ethics News Weekly on PBS. 
And your work with that show on Religion and Ethics Newsweekly, did you have a particular beat? I mean, was there something within religion that you covered, or were you just given sort of a free reign to find stories and to produce them? I've had pretty much a, a free reign to seek out the stories that I'm interested in uh, or stories that I felt no one else was telling. It happened. It turned out that I've done the bulk of my stories about the Catholic Church because that's the faith tradition that I was most familiar with. Um, I was based in Chicago, which is a big Catholic town. So I've spent the last few years focusing a lot on the Catholic Church, on Catholicism, on issues related to the Catholic Church. But I've covered many other things. I just did a piece this past weekend for Religion and Ethics on how all of the, the churches, Protestant, Catholic, and otherwise in Ferguson, Missouri, are trying to respond to the events there and trying to be sources of healing in that community. Well, you mentioned a couple moments ago that you got into journalism because you thought that it was a way to make a living with your writing. Did you find that your poetry changed when you began reporting factual stories? No, I found that my journalism changed because of my interest in poetry. Um, you know, I think, I think I've always been a very careful writer. I've tried to be an elegant writer and a very visual, imagistic writer. And I think that the poetry has informed my journalism. Occasionally, my journalism does inform my poetry. Sometimes I've written poems about uh, tangents to stories that I've covered. Um, for example, I, I had to cover a story at Memorial Sloan Kettering Institute up in New York one time. It was a story about Muslim chaplains, the, the um, greater occurrence of Muslim chaplains at hospitals. And it was interesting because Memorial Sloan Kettering is a, is, has been a, traditionally a Jewish hospital. And there was a Muslim imam chaplain there. And, and I wrote a story about that, about, about how he, he interrelated with many of the young patients there, particularly the teenage patients there. So sometimes the, the journalism does inform the poetry. And last April for National Poetry Month, I participated in a poetry reading in which poets responded to current events. It was called News That Stays the News. And um, that was, you know, that was a, a place, too, where the two, the journalism and the poetry, intersected for me. Well, I should ask then, do you have a favorite poet? I certainly do. I have a lot of favorite poets. But I think uh, Elizabeth Bishop would come to mind. She's, a, of course, a 20th century poet, a modern American poet. And she, she wrote a relatively small canon of poems but every poem is just so exquisitely crafted. She wrote the kind of poems where you have to scratch your head to, to say there's, there's a single word out of place or that you could think of a, a single line that would have been better than something that she put down on paper. And then as far as uh, living poets, I, of course, quite like Mary Oliver and Billy Collins. They're probably the, the most popular poets in America now. But, but there would be... Um, you know, a num number of other ones. I like the, the Polish poets, Seslaj Milos and also Anna Kamienska. So, um, you know, there's a wide variety. I'm, I've got a, a collection of Maxine Cumin uh, on my bed table right now. So just quite a variety. And so these poets, what, what I'm hearing in, in sort of common is, is that this is not sort of metric verse, but this is more kind of free verse reflection on, on life and, and things that happen in life. Am I, am I hearing a common thread there? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to uh, metric or rhyming poetry. And in fact, I've, I've written some villanelles and, and sonnets and, and things like that from time to time. But I think uh, to the modern ear, we're, we're much more accustomed to free verse in poetry. And what do you discover about yourself when you write poetry, when you, when you go into that place where the words are, are coming from somewhere within you? Are you ever surprised at what you find, or are you in the midst of uh, a, a process of self-discovery, or do you have a, a plan when you go into a given poem? Well, I might have a line. I don't have a plan. I might have a line in my head. For example, I'm working on a poem right now about my one of my dearest cousins, who is um, 13 years older than me, and has early onset Alzheimer's. And I was thinking of a poem about, you know, this is, this is the land where none of the bridges connect, or this is the land of the bridges that go nowhere. You know, something like that came into my head um, because there's, she cannot make connections anymore between things. And so I might have a line, but that's about it. I don't have a plan. And the poem becomes itself a journey of discovery. And how, how does that happen? It's in the associations that you be, then begin to make. You begin to see all these connections when you start to write the poems um, between images and thought, uh, words, sounds. And then pretty soon this, this poem comes spilling out. But of course you're not finished because the real, the real work of, of writing a poem is rewriting a poem. So... Um, it takes it takes a, a long time to write a good poem. I've I've worked on poems for a year uh, or more, and I think that's why nobody makes any money at poetry because it's so inefficient. <laughs> that's that's fascinating. I you know I'm I don't consider myself a poet, but I do enjoy poetry. But when when I sit down and read a well crafted poem, it just seems so effortless. And I'm I'm not surprised, but I am surprised that it takes so much effort to seem effortless. Right. There's a reason for that. And it's like the, the beauty and the ballet of watching a basketball game. And you know the many, many hours of strenuous practice and discipline that's gone into that player being able to make those lovely shots and lovely moves on the court. Well, when you, when you got into journalism and you began to report on religious subjects and you had this opportunity of sort of free reign do you have a favorite story from that period, or does something stick with you in terms of what you reported? Well, I'm, I'm hesitating to answer because there, there are so many. I had the opportunity to really do stories that related to many of my heroes. Um, you know, one that stands out, and it's actually very timely right now because um, on January 31st, we'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary of the great spiritual writer, the Trappist monk Thomas Merton. And I have been a Merton reader since college, just a Merton aficionado since college. And I think he was the greatest uh, spiritual thinker of the 20th century. I mean, he's going to go down as, as, you know, as one of these greats like Augustine and, and John of Cashin and um, some of the other great writers. 2008 was the 40th anniversary of his death in 1968, and I was able to go to the Abbey of Gethsemane. And that was like a dream for me, um, to actually visit the Abbey where he lived, to talk with monks who he had been the novice director of, to attend the services, the exact same services that he he had, to go to the hermitage he lived in at the end of his life, sit in his chair, touch his typewriter, which is at Bellarmine University in Louisville, 
uh, to touch his manuscripts, which are at Bellarmine University. Uh, all of that was such a huge thrill for me. And um, so that's one that really stands out. And then I got to interview some of my, my favorite writers, Mary Carr, the poet, Mary Gordon, the novelist and essayist, Carrie Newcomer, the, the wonderful folk singer, uh, Rachel Barton Pine, the excellent classical violinist. I was lucky that I was able to incorporate some of my own personal interests with the, the reporting I was doing on religion. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, our guest today is award-winning author, journalist, and poet Judith Valente. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with author, journalist, and poet Judith Valente. She's a regular contributor to PBS TV's Religion and Ethics Newsweekly, and she is on staff at WGLT Radio, the NPR affiliate in central Illinois. Her most recent book is Atchison Blue, A Search for Silence, a Spiritual Home, and a Living Faith. Well, as a person who's made her living with words, I wonder what is it like now to encounter and explore the silence and the pausing for contemplation that you discovered at the monastery? Well, believe it or not, it's it's in that silence, uh, that point of nothingness, where the words often come to me. If I have a, a poem that I want to write, for example, I'm I'm participating in another Poetry Month event for this this coming. Um, April, and then I'll be reading poetry February 17th, my poetry at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago. Um, And I have some poems that I'm trying to finish. And it's in those moments of silence where I really get the most work done on those poems. I love something that Thomas Merton wrote, really the great, greatest, one of the greatest spiritual thinkers of our time. And he said, um, there is so much talking that goes on that is utterly useless it is in the redwoods, in the wind, in the sea, that we hear the most important things. In other words, it's in the silence where everything connects. You mentioned a moment ago that you had an opportunity in reporting on Thomas Merton to visit the monastery at Gethsemane. Was that the first time that you had visited a monastery? No, it wasn't. In fact, it was interesting. It came, uh, it came after I had visited a couple of Benedictine monasteries um, just out of um, chance, really. And that's the, I guess, the sometimes the best things that happen to us in life happen through chance. Uh, we, my husband and I had published a, a book of poems and, and reflections, other people's poems like Mary, Mary Oliver, Billy Collins, Walt Whitman, um, just a lot of other people, Stanley Kunitz. We had taken poems that related to finding the sacred in the everyday and we wrote reflections to go with them and that book became 20 poems to nourish your soul put out by Loyola Press in Chicago and we started to get requests to do 
programs all over the country on touching the sacred through poetry, discovering inner wisdom through poetry, things like that. And we and a lot of the places that were inviting us were monasteries who have retreat centers. So we went to um, Waterton, South Dakota, to Mother of God Monastery there, a women's Benedictine monastery. And then lo and behold, I got a letter in the mail one day from Sister Thomasita Holman at Mount St. Scholastica Monastery in Atchison, Kansas. Now, Atchison, Kansas, a place I'd never thought about in my life, let alone uh, have had visited. And she was inviting me to, to come to Benedictine College, where she taught. It was her brother who had passed on my book to her. Her brother had worked with me at the Washington Post. And uh, he had had a copy of my book, and he passed it on to her. And she asked me if I would come and speak at Benedictine College to her students, but also to do a retreat, to lead a retreat on poetry at the monastery's retreat center, Sophia Center. And I don't know how to say this except that I walked in there and my life changed. Let's start Let's start with just the, the sort of beginning brushstrokes of this. So you were asked to prepare not only a presentation, but also a retreat. Was that intimidating at all? Were you, were you worried about doing that? Uh, yeah, a little bit, but also not so much because I knew I'd be, t- I'd be talking, it was a poetry retreat. It was a one day thing. And I knew I would be talking about something I was very passionate about and, and something that I could share with other people. So it wasn't, it wasn't that intimidating that there were a bunch of these um, Benedictine monastic sisters in the audience, as well as college people, uh, people who were a lot smarter and had a lot more degrees than I did, for sure. So, I mean, I just went and I did my thing. But it really, it re- what really happened was I, I arrived at the monastery exhausted because I was continuing to work while I was doing these book presentations. So I would be working during the week and then on weekends running around the country giving presentations on 20 Poems to Nourish Your Soul. And um, in fact, when I arrived at the monastery, I felt like kind of a fraud because I didn't know how I was going to stand up in front of the retreat group later that weekend and talk about nourishing the soul when I hadn't fed my own soul a decent meal in months. I hadn't taken the time to stop and pause and pray. And so uh, the morning of the retreat, I was sitting in the chapel. I got there a little bit early for Mass, for morning Mass. It was a Sunday morning. And it was, a, it was amazing. Silence saturated that room. And I remember how beautiful the light looked pouring in through the stained glass windows, um, splashing these colors on the wall. And in front of me was an image of St. Benedict, the founder of Western monasticism, with outstretched arms. And around him were some words in Latin, omni tempore silencio debent studere. You see, I remember those words to this day. At all times, cultivate silence. And suddenly the paradox that I had been living was staring me right there in the face. I had been running around, talking and talking, trying to help other people live a more contemplative life, when what was missing in my own life were moments of silence and solitude when I could simply listen and be. And without those moments, I was losing drop by drop the inner reserves I needed to do the work that I love well, but also cultivate an interior life. 
Well, you mentioned that when you came to this monastery, you were confronted by this visage of St. Benedict. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with St. Benedict, you say that he was the founder of Western monasticism. What do you mean by that? Right. Well, Benedict uh, lived in the Roman Empire, the, the tail end of the Roman Empire, when there was a lot of chaos and a lot of warring, things like that, persecutions. And he had this idea that it was important to go away, to go away to, to places of silence and solitude where one could seek God alone. And for a time in his life, he did this. He, he lived alone. He lived away from the city, away from the chaos. And then he came up with this brilliant idea that we need other people. <laughs> we need other people to help us on our personal and spiritual journey. And he began to then form communities of like-minded people, people who wanted to help each other, to lift each other up, to seek God. And that became the foundation of what we now call monasteries. Monasteries being a word that comes from monos in the Greek, meaning one, but not just one alone, but one together, one united, the community united. And that's what you have today. That's the great, the great blessing and gift of monastic life today is that um, people have a community. People have a stable community who enter monastic life. Uh, and their purpose is to, to seek God, to pray for our world, to be of service, to give up some things that the rest of us consider very important, like having a family, uh, having an income, having a job. But they, they give that up in order to have this life of community, of prayer, and contemplation. The concept of a monastery is that you are alone together. You are in community. You are united in community. And a phrase from your description jumped out at me, and this notion of we need other people. When you went to this monastery in Atchison, Kansas, connected to Benedictine College, you felt something that resonated. You, you mentioned that it changed your life in a profound way. When you went there, were you, uh, were you feeling alone? Were you feeling separated? And, and did you feel a sudden sense of community? I mean, I'm not quite sure what I'm asking, but something in, in the emotional quality of sitting in that space and seeing that Latin phrase about silence resonated deeply with you. Could you tell us about that? Right. I, I think what you, what you are getting at, David, is this lack of balance that I was feeling in my life. And if anything, monastic life, the Benedictine way of life, um, the, the legacy of St. Benedict is a life of balance. His, his motto was ora et labora, two other Latin words, pray and work. So there's got to be this balance between contemplation and action, contemplation, prayer, prayer and service. And you see that, of course, brilliantly in, in the New Testament, in the story of Martha and Mary. Martha being mostly about action, um, Mary being about sitting sitting at the side of Jesus. And, you know, both of them, both, both of those things are necessary in our lives. And so that's what you have people in monastic life kind of striving for. The other thing I felt was a tremendous sense of hospitality. In fact, I was overwhelmed by the warmth, the genuine interest that the sisters showed in me and in every visitor, in my husband who was with me, and every other time I met there, every other visitor. 
Um, and you you come to realize that monastic values are monastic life is built on certain values, hospitality being one of them. Um, and it comes directly from the rule of St. Benedict, the, the, the book where he laid out his whole philosophy of life called The Rule of St. Benedict, written in about 480 A.D. And it's as relevant today as it was six centuries ago because he talks about receiving all guests as Christ. Okay, that's where the hospitality comes from. And then... Um, he has this beautiful way of opening his rule. And he says, listen with the ear of the heart. And I always thought it was really interesting that the first word is not love or pray or worship or serve or service, but listen. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Judith Valente, who's an award-winning author, journalist, and poet. Her most recent book is Atchison Blue, A Search for Silence, a Spiritual Home, and a Living Faith. We'll be back in a moment. listeners, I just wanted to let you know about a new podcast that I'm launching with Emily Grassley from the Field Museum. It's called Divides Aside, and it's science and faith in conversation. This podcast is about laying down differences and finding new ways to understand each other. In these deeply personal conversations, me and Emily talk about our ways of seeing the world and why they they so often come into conflict and why we so often disagree. But as the episodes unfold, suspicion gives way to a growing friendship. Listeners get a chance to glimpse the difficulties and rewards that come when we put our divides aside. You can listen to it on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at Divides Aside and on Facebook.com, also at Divides Aside. Please do listen in. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to learn how to do this better. And we'd love to share this conversation with you. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Judith Valente. She's an award-winning author, journalist, and poet. She's reporter for PBS TV and for NPR. She has written several books, including Atchison Blue, A Search for Silence, A Spiritual Home, and A Living Faith. So you you mentioned that part of the, the idea that animates Benedictine practice is this notion of a life of balance. And you mentioned that when you came to Benedictine College and this monastery in Atchison, Kansas, and you met with these nuns, you felt very out of balance. How long did it take you? Did it just take you that weekend retreat to get everything back into balance? Or was this the beginning of a journey that is sort of still ongoing? I think it was the first step of a of a, of a million-step journey that I'm on, that I continue to be on. I mean, my life occasionally continues to be out of balance. 
Um, I've been very, very blessed to do good work, to do work that I'm very passionate about, to write books, to to lead retreats. To I have a full-time job at an NPR affiliate here in central Illinois. I still work for P- the PBS Religion and Ethics News Weekly show. Um, I write a column every two months for America Magazine. I'm, I'm very, very busy, so my life can get very out of joint. And occasionally, you know, I have to pull myself back. Uh, the Benedictines have another motto, two words in Latin again, succisa veresit, cut back, it will grow stronger. And it's a call to all of us to very regularly look at our lives, take a look at what we're doing, and see what we need to cut so that we can refocus on what's essential to nourishing the soul. Well, what strikes me about that that phrase that you just quoted, listen with the ear of the heart, that sounds to me not just like good psychoanalysis, that sounds to me like good poetry. Did that speak to you on a poetic level oh, as well? absolutely, absolutely, because poetry is about listening to the world around us, but also listening to those words that we put down uh, on paper. Absolutely. And it not only speaks to the poet in us, I think it speaks to our our public life as citizens as well. You look at what what has plagued our our country for the last several years. It's it's people t- it's our political figures talking at and over each other and very little listening, very little listening for that common ground. So Benedict was really on to something very very relevant. So you mentioned that you you had been visiting various monasteries giving talks about uh, this book of poetry that you had you had co-edited, you mentioned that you you also felt uh, that you had been moving too fast and not slowing down. So, and you came to Mount Saint Scholastica in Atchison, Kansas, and you had this epiphany. Uh, that doesn't seem too strong a word. Uh, an awakening somehow spiritually, and you gave this retreat. Uh, did it affect how you gave the the retreat? Did you did you feel like your your batteries were somehow more charged uh, for being there, or what? What was the experience like for the participants who saw you in that in that initial state of understanding? Well, I hope it was a good experience for them. A lot of them wrote poetry. I got to know several of them. I didn't go back to the monastery until about a, a year later to to really begin. I began making regular visits, spending a week a month, sometimes two weeks a month at, at the monastery because I was able to do this because I was freelancing at that time. I was freelancing for PBS and other places. So I was able, I had the time to do this, even though I didn't know I was going to write a book initially. It just sort of happened. But um, I got to know some of those people who were in that original poetry uh retreat slash workshop that I that I led and um, some of them I'm, I'm happy to say are still writing poetry in fact I I saw one of the women uh, Catherine Krauss her name in a in a magazine uh, one of her poems was in a magazine recently so I was very delighted to see that because I know she was there could you speak a little bit about what the structure of, of a day is like when you visit a monastery oh yes it's that's very important because it all hinges on prayer so you, you wake up in the morning, and you may have a bite to eat, but there's usually silence un, until you get to chapel, which is at 6.30 in the morning at Mount St. Scholastica. And 
the first words that the sisters say every day, they make this beautiful gesture, this lovely gesture of forming the sign of the cross across their lips. And they say, Lord, open my lips and I shall proclaim your praise. These are the first words that they say every day. And and it's a reminder that our days are meant for praise and not for complaining or grousing and criticizing, but for praise. And so morning prayer, morning praise is what they call it, lasts for a half an hour. And then people might have breakfast or if they teach at the college, they might go to the college. Some are hospital chaplains, things like that. Um, They might go off to whatever work they do. Many of them work within the monastery. They have duties within the monastery. And then there's uh, midday prayer, and that's uh, right after lunch at 1245. And then um, there's Vespers at 5.30. And and so that's a really nice time of day. Oh, I love Vespers. Everybody comes back to the monastery. The people who have worked outside in the monastery come back. And um, everybody's together again. And and it's, you know, you're you're sort of reevaluating all that happened in the day. And then at 7.30 is a thing, another beautiful prayer time called Compline, coming from the word simply completion. And they say the wonderful prayer there, um, Now let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. Um, you know, in other words, it's, it's time for rest. Um, go in peace. It's time for rest. Put aside whatever good things, bad things happened that day. It's time for rest. And then pretty much there's silence in the monastery after Compline, which ends at about, you know, 7.45, 8 o'clock. And I found that with these built-in pauses for prayer that I had a greater sense of having lived my day because I took those pauses. So we've talked a little bit about what you gained from your visit to the monastery in Atchison, Kansas. I wonder, do you have any insight into what the nuns who are there gain from visits like yours? Well, what they've told me is that it, I affirm their lives. I affirm their lives, their choice that they had made to live this life of community as opposed to a traditional life as a wife, a mother, um, a grandmother. I had affirmed their choice in life, um, which was very important to me because they had, they had given me so much. Um, David, David, we could spend the whole hour talking about the gifts that they gave me. I mean, just the, I remember somebody saying to me, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I, I, maybe like you, I suffer from a chronic disease. I call it overachieverism. <laughs> oh, and it's, it's closely aligned with that other disease, workaholism. Mm. So I'm always tr- comparing myself, uh, you know, to my personal best, you know, trying to surpass my last personal best. And I remember, um, it might have been one of the sisters. It might have been um, the retired abbot from the Benedictine Abbey down the road who said to me, um, you know, sometimes it's just enough to be who you are, be where you are, and love the people you love. And you don't know how many times I've repeated that to myself when I feel, oh, uh, you know, I really, I really need to do another book. Oh, you know, my next book really needs to to be with a bigger publisher, you know, or, oh, you know, I need to make a bigger splash in my in my journalism career. Um, That's a very healthy thing. Uh, In terms of 
that's not a healthy thing, but they taught me to, to look at it in a more healthy way. Um, in terms of what I gave back to them, I think I mirrored back to them very well their lives. They felt that the book um, mirrored what they tried to be all about. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the prayer life uh, of, of community. I mean, so many of us who tried to be people of faith, I think one of the biggest complaints is there isn't time for prayer. You know, uh, I used to go to daily mass uh, when I was freelancing, when I was just, uh, you know, a contract employee for PBS. Now I have this full-time job with the NPR affiliate. Well, what went out the window? Daily mass. Uh, I find it really hard to sit down and pray and meditate in the mornings. But if you're in a, when you're in a monastic, monastic community, uh, those prayer times are built into the body of the day. So at the Trappist Monastery, people pause eight times a day for prayer. At the Benedictine Monastery, it was four times a day. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, midday prayer, I'm, I'm never going to be, be able to make that because I'll be too busy. I'll be in the middle of something. But the bells would ring that called people to prayer. And I would stop in the middle of whatever sentence I was writing or whatever I was doing, I would stop and I would race to the chapel. As you're, as you're talking about these pauses in the day, what I, what I hear echoing through that is this, this phrase that you gave me from Benedict that says, cut back, it will grow stronger. That if you take a, a momentary pause, that that trimming back of time, it sounds like that allows for a greater flourishing of, of not only life, but the experience of life while in the monastery. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, life is not so much a blur, you know, as it is, you know, separate and distinct sections of your day that you're really trying to live. You know, you're taking those pauses to reflect on what came before, and then you're moving on to what comes ahead. And it's the antithesis of, of how I lived when I when I had this really high-pressure job as a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. I was with the Wall Street Journal for eight years, um, six of them in the Chicago Bureau. And I would come into the Chicago Bureau. I had a, we had an office on the 21st floor on Wacker Drive. And I would come in at about 8.30 in the morning and, you know, immediately turn on my computer and start reading the news wires and making phone calls and writing my story for that day or that week. And inevitably, at some point, I would look out the window, and it had turned dark. So the day had passed, and I'd missed it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself. And so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, So that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to advertisecast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show.
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Judith Valente. She's an award-winning author, journalist, and poet. Her most recent book is Atchison Blue, A Search for Silence, a Spiritual Home, and a Living Faith. Now that you've had this experience of being in that different time of the of the monastery where where pauses for prayer and contemplation are built into the day, how has that affected your life outside the walls of the monastery? Well, I'm a big believer in taking periodic pauses in my day. Um, and I have a very busy day um, at the radio station. I'm, I'm busy from the time I come in until the time I go home. But I do take intentional pauses. And something else, a practice that I was uh, taught by Brother Paul Quinnen, whom you referenced earlier as my co-author on my book, The Art of Pausing, Um, That book stemmed from him telling me that he wrote a three-line poem, a Japanese haiku of three lines, every day about something. That was part of his meditation practice. And I began doing the same thing, and we began exchanging these three-line poems, and then eventually we wrote some reflections to go with them. And that became our book, The Art of Pausing Meditations for the Overworked and Overwhelmed. And so I try to I, I try to be on the lookout my day for what's going to be my three line haiku. Um, what am I going to write my three lines about that day? Um, Jonathan Montaldo, a great Thomas Merton scholar, talks about writing a holy sentence every day, and it's all it's all about the same thing. It's all about those that pausing to regroup, to cut back a little bit so you can be stronger. And Benedict. Um, recognized that need way, way back in the time of the Roman Empire. So do you still visit the monastery at St. Scholastica? I do indeed. Um, I, I visit it a few times a year, not as, not as much as I used to because I'm working full-time at the NPR job now, so I don't have the luxury of going there for a week or two at a time. I would love to be doing that again and, and hope to, when I give up this job at some point, uh, but I go back every year for, for something they call the Oblate Institute. And the Oblates are the lay associates of the monastery. They are people who also take vows, but to live out the Benedictine values of listening, hospitality, humility, prayer, service, compassion, contemplation, to live out those values in their secular lives. And I am um, now a Benedictine Oblate. You you, you go through a period of formation or study or preparation for that of two, three years, whatever you feel comfortable with. And then you, you, you take almost the same vows that the sisters take themselves. Well, so now that you are in this process of being an oblate with this monastery in Ashton, Kansas, how have your spiritual practices changed? I do try to practice um, saying what they call the liturgy of the hours, that is the those are the, the community prayers that I talked about, morning praise, midday praise, evening prayer or vespers and Compline. You know, I tried to do some form of that in, in my regular life, but I think it's, it's mainly uh, bringing a Benedictine attitude to your everyday lives. Um, and what do I mean by a Benedictine attitude? I mean being a listener rather than someone who has to always do the talking. Um, taking a humble servant's approach to things. 
you're taking that time to be mindful, to do what you're doing mindfully and not just on automatic pilot. You know, I, I have a very bad habit of trying to do three, two, three things at once, multitasking. I mean, who, whoever, whoever thought of that, you know? <laughs> But uh, yeah, you know, I mean, we, we tend in America to glorify that kind of thing, glorify the person who's a workaholic, glorify the, the multitasker. And really, it's, it's the opposite person who's actually being more productive. Well, I'm, I'm recording my part of this interview from the heart of the financial district here in the Chicago Loop. And I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to import Benedictine values into uh, the Chicago financial and the New York financial sort of markets and those sorts of things. How how do you think the world would be affected if the if the if the business world could become more Benedictine? Well, I'm very glad you asked me that because look at what what has gotten us into trouble. What has gotten us into trouble is the antithesis of those values. You know, being focusing on the self, one's own needs, um, putting oneself ahead of other people. Uh, the whole financial crisis of 2008 was constructed on this sense that I got mine, I'm going to pass on the risk to somebody else, and it doesn't, you know, I don't care what happens after I, I take my money out of the system. And, and, and it just got passed on and passed on until there was no one else, and the whole, the whole thing came crashing down. And St. Benedict says, be the first to show respect to the other. Do what is best for the community rather than for yourself. And often doing the best for the community is doing the best for ourselves. I mean, people on Wall Street could have made a lot of money while still uh, not putting other people at risk and not putting the whole system at risk. But we got so out of whack where, um, you know, there was so much money that people were making for themselves that they didn't, they didn't care anymore about what it was doing to the whole financial system, the system as a whole. So I just look at that and I, and I think that, wow, that's a place where Benedictine values, um, if, we, if we really gave it a chance, could work. And the same thing with our Congress, listening, listen with the ear of the heart. If we began really listening to each other instead of trying to demonize people that have a differing point of view, if we worked from a point of consensus rather than conflict, the way monasteries make decisions is all of the, all of the, the views are aired, um, everybody gets, gets a chance to weigh in, and then the hierarchy or whoever, you know, whoever the people in charge of making the decisions makes a decision, but based on what they've heard, what they've listened to. And here's the other thing that's very unique about how monasteries make decisions, and I think it would work in our business world, is once the decision is made, everyone agrees to pull together and help make that decision, that course of action work. Now think about how much farther along we'd be on healthcare reform if we had spent the last two years trying to figure out how do we make this work rather than how do we dismantle it? How do we tear it down? So much energy has gone into that. So um, I think it's, it's very important to remember that monasteries are enterprises. They are among the world's oldest enterprises. They've lasted for 1,500 years and that's longer than any corporation has lasted. That's longer than any modern nation state has lasted. So I think 
that monastic values have something to teach us here in the 21st century. Well, Judith Valente, I have very much enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you, David. Thank you for your important work. We're speaking today with Judith Valente. Ms. Valente is an award-winning author, journalist, and poet. Her most recent books include Atchison Blue, A Search for Silence, A Spiritual Home, and a Living Faith. She is also co-author with Brother Paul Quinan of The Art of Pausing, Meditations for the Overworked and the Overwhelmed. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.